Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is me, your host, William Porteous. I hope you're doing well. If you're checking in for the first time because you've seen the name Bernie Marsden, then welcome. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're ready to... I don't want to say it because it's cheesy, but I hope you're ready to rock. I mean, who gives a shit anyway, you know? I mean, when people say that on the radio, here's a song coming up by Brian Adams or Bon Jovi get ready to rock, I go, I'm going to get ready to rock. I don't mind. I don't mind admitting to that. So now we're over that. Um, you, I've, I've given you my um, confession to the 80s rock, 70s rock vibe within my, within my soul that's unquestionable. It's stronger than oak. You can now feel relaxed. It's okay. You're in a safe, you're in a safe pa- space. It's fine. I hope you've been well. I have been good-ish. I mean, getting on with it, trotting on one foot in front of the other is all you can do these days, I guess. Um, but yeah, how how's this week looking uh, in terms of podcasting is... I guess I kind of would like you to read a book if, if it's in, in your interest to do so. Uh, by this wonderful author, Kate Weinberg. I've had a conversation with her. She's written a cracking book, which I got through in next to no time whilst gardening. I love my audio booking. I just love it. It's called The Truants. It's fantastic, The Truants. So I want you, if you can, possibly spare a minute and a few pounds to check it out. You'll love it. It's, uh, it's, it's got that Patricia Highsmith feel about it. It's got tributes to like Agatha Christie in there. It's not uh, of that mold. It's definitely uh, murdery and mister and misterish, Myst- mischievous as well. But it's it's a very modern book. It's very cool. It's very empowering. First person narrative. It tri- trippy in places, but uh, very hypnotic. Beautifully written. Everything you everything you want, really. It's very personal. It's a personal book. You feel very, uh, as it is, because it's first-person per- first narrative, you're, you're very engrossed in it. And I, I would say that's sort of part of our little, little book club we've got going on here. So if you want to um, check out Kate Weinberg's The Truants, then feel free to do so. I will be chatting with her next week. I'm really looking forward to bringing that to you. But yeah, back to Bernie. Back to Mr. Marsden. White snake fame and much more. Google that. Google this this crazy cat. He is one of the loveliest men I think on the planet. He's um, uh, I don't know what you'd call him, like an axe king. He can he can wail, man. He can really wail. And he's written some mega hits, some huge hits for White Snake. You'll know. Here I go again, right? Here I go again on my own. Okay, well, that's my version of it. There are other versions available, but I would say that's probably the best vocal performance you'll probably hear. Um, but yeah, and, and he was uh, a massive uh, dude within that realm, and it's it's a great conversation. It's, it's a bit of a technical one, 
his Zoom, uh, it wasn't his Zoom connection wasn't so hot, so it is a bit in, in places, but only a little bit. You'll be fine. You'll be fine with it. But let's face it: if you just listened to the Paul Salapak episode, he was in freaking Burma. So <laughs> we made that work, so we can make this one work. So bear with it. But it's good. It's well worth it. And yeah, yeah. So like I mentioned, Paul Salapak there. I hope you've listened to that show. It's a, it's a pretty insane show. He's done an awful lot with his life. Essentially, what we're trying, what I'm trying to bore down into here with this podcast is just trying to talk to people that have done stuff with their lives. It doesn't necessarily matter if they're super duper famy, famous people. It's just what they've done with their lives. It's amazing how podcasts these days are so celebrity led. I venture a guess that if it were not for the fact that I was, you know, talking to some pretty awesome people, we wouldn't be getting as far as we are. I'm just really interested in talking to people. I'm I'm bringing a friend in soon to talk about um, her life uh, and, a, and another friend to talk about his life. I think it's cool that we all can connect with, with people from all walks of life. So I hope you're going to appreciate that when and uh, and hopefully when that happens. But yeah. It's cool, man. And always, if you can spare the time, I'm just going to pivot slightly here for you. If you can spare the time, can you? Can you spare the time to go to my website, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk? Can you do that? You know you want to. There's a blog up there soon. It's going to be a blog up there. I'm going to be writing about my life. Oh, yeah. I've had a pretty freaking weird journey, let me tell you. Boarding school, rock and roll bands, death of my dad family stresses all that kind of crap it's all going to go up there and and that's on sundaysofdiamonds.co.uk you've got the short film there you're going to love it you're going to love it that short film that I've been going on about for nearly a year over a year now over a year you're going to you're going to love it so check it out sundaysofdiamonds.co.uk anyway i look i look forward to your response with this chat with bernie cuz i'm excited Sweet guy, sweet conversation. Enjoy it. If you feel like hitting me up on Twitter, please do so at Limehouse Pod or Instagram, the Limehouse Podcast. Mmm, lovely stuff. Anyway, this is me saying TTFN. I think that means to tar for now. I'm not too sure. It's been years since I've used it. I've just rolled it out willy nilly. Uh, Rosie says goodbye. Arlo's in Suffolk now. We've decided to leave him there for a little bit. He's a bit aggy in London, bit aggro. Bit, bit violent. I mean, not violent, violent. He doesn't kill any dogs or shit like that, but he, he just gets a bit aggy. Rosie's on the sofa next to me. She is licking her genitals, saying bye in a super uh, COVID clean world. Her vagina and asshole are now perfectly polished clean. I hope you can't hear any of that licking, but there you go. It's the world we live in. Dogs. Can't believe I just said all that. Look after yourselves. Can you, can, you, can you hear me okay? I can hear you beautifully, yes. What a beautiful yeah. voice you have. Oh, don't know about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, um, I had similar issues when I was doing a chat not so long ago with when I first started using Zoom and I nearly had an actual paddy. Well, I had a paddy and I nearly cried 
So I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And it was, <laughs> it was just, you know that it's easy to do, but it's just defying you. And it's so humiliating. That's when you need a 20, 24 year old around with this. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, well, you're not much more than that, I'm 38, but I'll take that. No. I will take that. Thank you very much, Bernie. Yeah. I remember being 38. It was a long time ago. Yeah, but you know, you know, I'd I'd love oh god, I'm 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 enjoying getting old. It's good fun. It's like um well I say that I've not really hit the sixties or seventies yet, so uh but um You will a, Yeah, yeah, well hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um how are you how are you doing? We're recording by the way, so well, okay. um, but how how are you doing? How are you how are you doing these past few weeks, months? It's no different really for people like me in a way, you know. Um because you're either full on or yeah. you're fully off. So what I, I'm, I'm not really missing. I miss the gigs but because I miss the people. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm not really missing the airport thing and, you know, the transfers to the hotels and stuff. I mean, it sounds like I'm moaning. I'm not moaning about it. But Who now it's got that? to the point yeah. where I, now I would rather like to think that I had got 20 shows in the book to do. You know, yeah. but I'm, you know, I'm okay. I mean, fortunately, I, you know, I have other ways of making a living other than, you know, doing live work. So, yeah. you know, I'm trying to be candid. Um, and um, I said to my agent about about six weeks ago, really, because they were talking about, you know, oh, I think we're going to get cancelled. And, and I said, well, look, when they rebook gigs, why don't you tell the promoters to book shows with people who need the income from live gigs you know more than right. i really and give them the venues and uh he said oh well that's very very big of you i said well not really i just you know just in a way it seems you can put a bit back in but the comeback from that from promoters nearly everywhere was no we, we need people who are going to sell tickets yeah. so sort of catch 22 really i've got one show in norway that hasn't at the moment been cancelled and that's in september Okay. And everything everything else that was going to be this year has been moved to next year. So yeah, you know. I mean the knock-on effect is is, is it's extraordinary and I'm talking to a lot of Yeah, it is uh, bands. It's a good word. Yeah, I mean yeah, and and I think there are a lot of bands that are just starting out that that are having the rug well and truly pulled out from underneath them by this. Um Well, not even just starting out. I mean, I feel for people like you, you know, the, the next generation of people that I've worked with and got to know, people like Chris Barris and you know, and John Shaw Taylor, people like that, who pretty yeah. much rely on making an album and then going straight out on the road. Uh, it's a bit different from my generation because some of us are more fortunate than others with back catalogues to, to, to live off of. And, you know, they live gig to gig. And um, also with the advent over the last few years of what we're doing now with social media, sometimes you get to the point where you seem to think because you're on social media all the time people think oh well he's a quite a big up and coming or she's a big up and coming star well the fact is doing their work and building up their following and if they can't yeah. be out there playing then there's no following being built up so I, I do feel feel for the uh well everybody really but especially the people like you talk about the ones with you know uh, uh, got a good head start with their career chris is a good example i mean he just had a brand new album ready mm. to go just as I think uh, lockdown began. And he had a whole tour of Italy, I think it was, uh, booked at the time when Italy was really, really bad. Yeah. And Italy was the good part of the tour where he could subsidise other parts of Europe. So taking out the, the Italian gigs, 
curtailed his whole tour, which is, yeah. you know, just sad beyond belief or, you know, just unfortunate. But there again, it's happening the whole world over. So, yeah, well, exactly. It's like copy and paste of so many artists. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. It's interesting you man- mentioned Joanne Shaw Taylor there because mm. um, she's actually was my my first girlfriend's best mate so we, we used oh. to hang out we used to hang out when right. she was about 15 or something or 16 up yeah. in Sol, up in solly hall yeah up yeah in, up in birmingham and um oh my god joe and i used to play rhythm guitar and hang out going we went to see a, <laughs> a, a really shit zz top cover band uh the robin is it the robin hood or something too yeah the robin, robin in Bilston. yeah 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 and yeah. um god and now like you know and then we went to see I went to see the hoax at Chillingfold Working Men's yeah. Club, which you'd be familiar with. Yeah, and I've played that a few times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to get it, get onto that later because that is okay. a fucking cool story. But yeah. but do you remember, do you remember the hoax? Do you and 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 all that kind of lot from back in the late nineties, early nineties? Yeah, 90s. John, John Amor and the, the the two brother guy, the two brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I, I, I spoke with John. I spoke with John not so long ago for the show and. And that was a really beautiful story. But can, can, how do you know uh, Joanne Shaw Taylor then? Uh, I met Joe um, about three years ago. I'm not good on years. I say three. That's all right. Somebody will go, <laughs> no, it was five or it was seven. But uh, basically, we ran into each other a few times at gigs. Uh, some, a couple of Joe Bonamassa gigs. When, so she was kind of pally with Joe. And so I met her, I think, probably at one of his shows backstage or whatever. And, and then I did some, uh, I did a whole tour with her where I did a, an acoustic opening for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And then I joined her with the band for the last Sweet. 15, 20 minutes of her gig. And that went really well. And we got along really well. She was great. She'd, you know, I'd nestle up against her on stage and she'd say, oh, here comes the lesson, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But she, I mean, she's, she's good. I mean, she's, she's a good girl. She's a good musician and, you know, I got, I was on the, I think I was on the radio somewhere and I think somebody must have told her or she heard it and somebody said, she's good for a girl, isn't she? I said, no, she's just good. You know, and I, yeah. I think that got back to her. So I think when I, we first met, you know, I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a mate really, you know, but she's a good girl. Oh, we, are, we, are good, we are good friends, you know. That's beautiful, man, because she is, I, I, I mean, when she was 15, 16, we went to, uh, she was doing like a village festival in Hitchin. And I'm talking like haystacks for a stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Joe and Joe's there and it's and she wasn't even singing back then. She was just playing guitar and they had this sort of front man. And oh my god, I mean she, I couldn't believe her. I like the the, yeah. the tone uh, even and yeah, mainly the tone because she was she's very um she was she always played play a telecaster. I don't know what she plays now, but um she, she still plays a telecaster and sometimes but she plays a Les Paul a lot these days and yeah. You know, she's uh She's just, you know, she's good. She's good company, and she's a good musician. And you know, I just, you know, she's a good example of what hold up this last, you know, and the rest of this year is going to be for, 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 for artists like, like, like that, really. Yeah, yeah. So, would would you mind taking it back a few no. years, to to the early, early, early days, like for Let's example, part like. One. Which was part one, two, three, four. Right, yeah, man, fuck <laughs> it. You know, <laughs> it's lockdown, we've got hours. Um, right. What was I going to say? Yeah, so like, was it, I'm just going to presume, and uh, maybe Elvis was kicking around and he kind of blew your mind a bit? No, no, Elvis was uh, a little bit before my beginnings because yeah. uh, my cousin's uh, uh, 
uh, who were all, all, I was the youngest one of the family kind of thing. And so my cousin, especially one particular cousin, she was a Mad Elvis fan and she lit, literally had the t-shirt and the, the pillowcase and stuff, you know, but I wasn't really <laughs> that aware of Elvis. It was the Beatles that, uh, that that's, that's where I began really. Uh, the yeah. shadows a little bit before because of the guitar thing, you know, seeing shiny guitars on TV, they weren't color. Oh, but, uh, yeah. Apache you know, so I, so yeah. It was kind of watching, I suppose, show TV shows on a Sunday night or something or Saturday night on, you know, I think there was a uh, ready, steady go and stuff like that. So I'd still be at school, but I was kind of hip to this, like, no, oh, this looks a bit unusual. This is like people doing what they like growing their hair long, which wasn't yeah. very long but, uh, compared. So that's how I began. And I got into Elvis much later when I was kind of reading John Lennon's comments and saying, don't, don't watch any of these films, you know, go back and find us you know, 78 from 1957 or something. So right. my folks awesome. weren't into Elvis. My folks were into more middle of the road stuff. So I think the nearest okay. I got to that was probably a Gene Vincent record or, or Buddy Holly record in the house when I was okay. a kid. Okay, or a Andy, Williams. A Andy Williams? Andy uh, Williams? No, they were more into things like, uh, I don't know, what was the guy's name? Uh, David Whitfield. And, okay. Uh, and and um, uh, what was the American guy? Uh, yeah, Bobby Conn, Neil Sedaka, stuff like that. Oh my god! Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, good songwriter. Yeah, I mean, this is what I was going to say was it's actually quite interesting that you say the Beatles because for me that kind of makes sense because of your uh, amazing songwriting abilities. So I think like they're obviously um, the Beatles. When, when the Beatles just, when the Beatles cracked it, I was twelve. You know, so twelve or thirteen. So I was not a kid, but I wasn't grown up but i could understand the euphoria and this whole thing where suddenly the beatles are on the front page of the daily mirror you know with my dad saying to me look at it what's all this about you know yeah beatlemania and i was thinking and i'm going well, i didn't really understand it but of course it put into my mind that whole thing so i guess uh, yeah i guess it was and then they were everywhere yeah and that was like well that's what i want to do you know that's when the kernel began of well, why can't I do that? You know, then the hard part be began be trying to do it. Yeah, yeah, right, for sure. But when you're it's young, you're like... to decide what you want to do, but doing it is a little harder. I completely agree. But the the the, the 10,000 hours or whatever the hell it is that you need, you're not questioning that as a kid, are you? Was there like the... Can you remember that burning desire when when can you describe it for me a bit when 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 you were setting out on the guitar? Yeah, I can, I, when I look back, you know, when I wrote when I wrote the book, you know, a lot of that stuff sort of came back, and I realised that if I heard a record on the radio, and, we, and you only ever heard stuff on the radio then, very rarely yeah. a television thing, and you'd think, well, I can, I want to play that, and I would, I was doggedly determined to play it. I may have played it 50, 60 percent wrongly but it sounded like the record and, and that got me into a band when I was 13 or 14 yeah. because I could play a lick by the Hollies or by the searchers or something that the guys who were older than me had grown up with Elvis couldn't yeah. do. And so that elevated me into this rarefied air of being a bit of a like whiz kid. This is all right. You know, people are looking yeah. at me. I don't mind that. And I was a shy kid as well. Still am really. Yeah, yeah, like get, get 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 well, kid at heart, right? Like get Bernie yeah. in the band. He can play. He can play a bit of Apache or whatever or Wipeout. You know, it's like yeah, and I could you see, I could do all that falling off a log. But there was when the other stuff came in, and, and when suddenly 
a lick from um, it was look through any window by the Hollies, which was quite difficult to play. Okay, yeah, yeah. and uh, I just said, "Oh, you mean this?" And it was the other guitar player in the band, and, you know, A was pissed off, <laughs> and B was impressed, but he didn't know in which order. You know, it was funny. <laughs> That's fucking brilliant. I love it. That's so funny. Oh, he God, was the I... guy that said, "You'll be the rhythm guitarist. I'm the lead guitarist." And I went, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll show you." <laughs> Hey, I love that. Quite, you need quite that. arrogance. Yeah, yeah. I love it though. I think you need that. Otherwise, you're never going to get to the top. And also, you know, great musicians they need to be pushed, right? You know, yeah. so there's no doubt about it. Yeah. But like, and what... I knew, I knew within literally within weeks, really, of being in that band, that I didn't want to be playing that material. I wanted to be yeah. looking further. So that's how that began. And then you become that thing between really talented kid and a right bloody little bigot. <laughs> so you've got you've got to go with the big head side of it because as long as you don't take that off stage you can cope you know yeah, say, yeah. well i am better than that you know i'm better than this i can play better than this because yeah, the, the other band the rest of the band couldn't for sure and it was that but but well i suppose when you're 15 and you're talking to old men of 20 and 21 yeah. most of them already with families you know i was i was i probably was a bit of an upstart but um, right yeah that's probably why we're talking now so, well, exactly, exactly. Can, can I just ask who, who um, because it's interesting to me because I've got a relate, I, I, I'm a bit of a drummer, a bit of a guitarist, a bit of a jack of all trades, but I, my first, my first guitar was like, you know, just a, a, a Fender uh, copy, like just a Strat copy and what have you. But I can remember it like it was yesterday. Um, what was your first guitar, like your relationship with it? And did your mum and dad fork out or? Well, my first electric guitar was a, was a Hofner, Hofner Colorama, which I, saved up my paper round money as much as I could and my birthday money and stuff like that. I'd already been, my parents had already found me an acoustic, you know, and I use the term acoustic guitar quite loosely. It was a bit of a pig really, <laughs> but it enabled me to learn the first five frets and to play chords and to play uh, very basic tunes. And then one afternoon or one evening I played along with, I think it was a theme from Coronation Street or Z. <laughs> And and I remember my mum going, do that again? And it was like I said, and the moment they said that and said to my dad, uh, listen to this, do that again. And I immediately said, can I have an electric guitar? So that was how that one jumped up. And I saved, I said, that was, the, that was the, all of about 40 pounds at the time. Ooh. And uh, my dad, bless him, who I still, I've still got with me. Um, he gave me the, uh, I, I put the deposit down and he guaranteed the higher purchase payments with a bit of money on top as well. Yes. So it's, uh, as I always point out, if he comes to gigs locally when I play now, it's all his fault, really. <laughs> oh, mate, that's such a lovely story. <laughs> Honestly, where did, where did you grow up in the world? I grew up in um, grew up in Buckingham, and, yeah. uh, Buckinghamshire, uh, which wasn't the market town then. Aylesbury is the market town. But you, 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 no, I was just about to say, but you don't want to live there. Um <laughs> Buckingham was originally, I think, obviously Buckinghamshire, but it was very rural, you know, very, yeah. very not the place to say to school people, what are you going to do when you leave school? I'm, as I'm, I'm going to play the guitar. Yeah. You definitely didn't say that, but I said it from yeah. the age of about 13. Brilliant. And it annoyed a lot of people, irritated people, and the occasional one made them go, oh, you know, this boy's a little bit different. And yeah. Uh, I take my hat off to them to this day, the ones that did listen. There were very few. And who, who was listening to you then? I had one okay. teacher, uh, one teacher in particular at school who 
had seen me playing in a local pub over a weekend. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, she had been in another bar while I was uh, playing some very bad Cream and Jimi Hendrix, probably, <laughs> but at least trying to do it properly. And uh, I think I, there's probably a couple of blues things in there, you know, slow blues. And unknown to me, she was in the other the and she went oh my god that's one of my pills. and the next monday she sort of stopped me and said uh you could do this this could be this is your this could be your career you know Thank so uh, she was really good and i was like 15 15 and a half yeah she yeah. said no the, you know forget all this school business just play the guitar which was pretty radical for the time good god jesus i love mm. that so what can you she got into she got into more trouble than i did but, uh, <laughs> that's another story you have to read the book for that one. Oh man i bet yeah like my, um god that is a that's fantastic i love it i mean um i'm drawing a little bit from rick parfit here because i remember when he um I, I, I read some of the back in the day i was obsessed with status quo as most people are fully aware but i um i uh <laughs> it's such a funny thing to admit to but Rick always maintained that he um, said to his French teacher, I'm not going to need French lessons. I have an interpreter when I'm when I'm older, mate, because I'm going to be a fucking rock star. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I love that level of arrogance. So it's cool. Yeah, it's it's control. It's controlled arrogance, but it's, it's arrogance that can also be arrogance slash confidence. Yeah. You know, so if you're really confident to some people, you're really arrogant. Yeah. And, you know, but if you let them get to you, you would never have done it. You'd have said, oh, no, no. But, you know, it's like, there's your pedestal or there's your pigeonhole. Get in it. And I, I, would, mm. I would never say, I always said, no, no, I want to wait. I want to get higher. I want to do this. Yeah. So I was lucky, in, you know, to have her at that point, maybe. I don't know. Uh, mm. I mean, she always said, you know, just work hard. And she turned me on to Bob Dylan and, she she did a lot of stuff to say you know so yeah wow. but you have to go to university to be a professional musician and you have to be able to read music and she said uh, who's your favorite player and i said oh eric clampton and she said do you think he reads music and i went well i don't i don't know but he's a professional she said exactly so it was you know that kind of instead of like your, your so-called older and better knowing more than you you could say or all saying to me you know that's not a real job you know pull yourself together sort yourself out and yeah. uh, go be a carpenter or a bricklayer you know yeah and ruin your so hands that was it. so i i to this day i have to if i would love to be able to sit down and um, say thank you to her but uh, do you know do you know what bernie i've i it's funny because i had a chat for this podcast with my old headmaster and that was and I, I'm talking when I was 10, 11. And I just mm. wanted to, I just wanted to say thank you, essentially. Mm. And we ended up having a two hour conversation. Um, and there are so many, you know, so many times in your life where you do think about those people, but you never, for whatever reason, you either can't or you, you've forgotten, but you can't reach back. So you can't reach out to, to, mm. to the future, back to the future, I guess. Well, I to, had the chance, to thank I, last them. summer, I had the chance to, to meet my headmaster from 50 years ago. And I went to see him. He's, in, he's just in his early eighties, and I, I think he was more emotional than me as I walked up the. Uh, I'll tell you, this is a good story. This, uh, I walked up his driveway in Cumbria, and I could hear him saying, "There he is, there he is," you know. And I was older than he was when he was a teacher at yeah. that point, a lot older. 
and we talked and then I ran into uh, a pal of mine. It was Gary Moore's tech for many years, Graham. And he had read my book and he said, uh, you know, you're Mr. Banks. And I said, yeah, he said he was my headmaster in Liverpool after he left his job where I was at school. Oh, wow. And he said to, in a conversation with him, what are you going to do when you leave school? And he said, I'd like to work in the music business. And Mr. Banks, 30, 40 years on, said, it's a very hard industry. It's very difficult. There's only one person I've ever known in my entire career who wanted to do it and made it big. And he said, and that's somebody called Bernie Marsden. And he was in a group called Whitesnake. And Graham said, I'm seeing him tonight at the Empire. <laughs> with Whitesnake. <laughs> oh, that just man. about sums the whole thing up, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then Graham went into and he, he worked for Gary for all of Gary's professional career nearly. Oh, wow. Yeah. God almighty. No, it's, a, it's a kind of a, just one of those things. So it let's is. get to the, let's get to the main course. I will be here literally. Today. Yeah, no, I, I love that though, Bernie. That's such a lovely story. <laughs> oh God. I, I love Gary Moore as well. My God, God rest his soul. But I yeah. mean, so I suppose like, when did it, cause I'm, I'm, I'm thinking some sweaty pubs and some pretty rocking, rocking sweaty pubs were your, were your first bands. What was your first meaningful band that you really thought this is, we're gonna, my we're my first off. meaningful band was a band called Skinny Cat, and that was a, yeah. started off as a five or six piece, ended up as a three piece, and that was around the end of the sixties. And first recording sessions, first transit van on the road, traveling more than twenty miles to a gig, you know, pretending you were you were you were the bee's knees, and we did that okay. But um, I knew inherently then and that if I was going to do what I intended to do, that it wouldn't be with those guys because one of the guys was great, but he already had two kids. So he could never do those two pound shows or go and live in a squat somewhere for him. He couldn't do it. And the other guy was always going to inherit his father's business. Uh, So that wasn't ever going to work, but it was a really good band and we had a good following and we played uh, lots of proper gigs. And that was what turned me on to being into we opened up for a lot of guys in blues clubs and then you realize halfway through the show said, so, well, you know, we're probably, we're as good as them, you know, but they were the name acts. And then you'd have those, some of those guys from that band coming into our dressing room or just saying, Oh, where's that guitar player? Or what, you know, what's your name? You know, you yeah. should be a pro, you know, I go, yeah, I'd like to be, you know, and stuff like that. So I knew there was yeah. a, a spark there kind of thing. So after that, that's when I Skinny Cat. I left Skinny Cat to join UFO. So that was my turning pro. That was my turning pro gig. That's a hell of a step. How did that work out? How did that? Well, just through auditions from an advert in in Melody Maker. Yeah. uh, Name band seek lead guitarist must have good image and long hair. I can still remember it now. (laughs) Is there anything about how good you could play? Must have good image (laughs) and long hair. And I, I should have read. I should have read between the lines because that was really all they cared about. Oh. I got the gig because I had a Gibson Firebird, and they didn't know what it was, and it looked cool. They said, oh, "I said, what yeah. about the plane?" Yeah, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh so I God. went from being I went from being pretty big fish in a small pond around around here where I live now, mm. into you know. So, so I went from being big in North Bucks to being big in much bigger in Northern Europe. You know. But we yeah. went. I went literally from playing with Skinny Cat to doing a residency at the Marquee, 
and then we went into Germany, Spain, Italy, and I was on the road and, ah, this is what it is. And then you realize that it isn't like the front cover of a Beatles EP. It was bloody yeah. hard work, but I Very loved it. But we were just not compatible with UFO and me. And uh, so I did about eight months and I got to know Michael Schenker and I knew Michael would join UFO. So I just didn't show up for a, a German tour for the first three days, which is, was very bad. I still, I still yeah. regret it really, but yeah. I knew Michael would play. So that was the thing really. And uh, Michael and I are still good friends today. And uh, I guess uh, at a push, so the rest of UFO and me, we're, you know, we're old blokes now and we can all say that. Oh, God, I went to man. wild Turkey after UFO and not yeah. the country, the, the band. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bernie, I've got, I've got to ask, man, like, um, because for me to 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 go from essentially like you said like famous in north buckinghamshire to essentially mm. touring europe eight and uh, i don't know how old you were but that's got to be a hell 20. of a 20 20 jesus that's a that's early that's young what was that step like what was the step up like into terms of like full on groupies well, I went, and beer? i went in i went into it with you know with eyes wide open and and arms wide you know um because UFO A was an established group, B were managed by a company called Chrysalis, who had an agency and a record label. And Chrysalis were like the happening young label of the time in the early 70s. So it was kind of, I mean, I was being kind of uh, using it as a bit of a walkway as well, because I could see myself walking into that thinking, well, this can't be bad. Everything's in one package here apart from the fact that I wasn't really suited to the band, but I could only find that out <laughs> being on the road. And I stayed with Chrysalis for the next, while Turkey was a Chrysalis act as well. And it was a big move, but I realized that I was getting a following in Germany, especially because my name started to appear on posters, UFO featuring. Oh, right. And then I walked in after about the third German tour, I think we did. And there was this almighty row going on in another room, a dressing room. And it was Phil Morgan, the promoter, and they were rat he was having a row with him because the promoter had put my name on the poster. <laughs> and I thought, Hang on, but I'm in the band. What's going on? And that sums up my relationship with UFO, really. I see, man. You outshone them, dude. You outshone them. What can yeah, I say? But, but I would, ne but never trying to. I just did yeah. the gig. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, but by that time, I was hanging out with the the guys from Super Tramp and lots of other people. You know because we were doing double uh, that's when i met cozy powell and it, oh. all these guys that become part of my career later on you know we were all doing the same thing but suddenly I, I thought well this being a pro isn't much fun but then i got into wild turkey yeah and that if that had been my first gig as a pro all would have been well but as i, I keep mentioning the book but as i say in the book for all the negative part of the ufo without that break with UFO, who knows what would have happened. So they gave me that gig. And I always like to say, well, not just because I had a Gibson Firebird. I like to think it was because I could play quite well as well, you know. Uh, yeah, so think, it's one yeah, of those yeah. it's one of those things. And they and they we, we kind of just just to end up the UFO thing. Yeah, yeah. We kind of disowned each other. Well I say kind of. We we agreed to disown each other when I did finish by saying, look, I'll tell you what, you know, I'll never say I was with you and you say that I was never with you. And it kind of worked until Whitesnake when suddenly a greatest UFO hits came out and Full Fear Loving was on it. 
Ooh, that's very weird and naughty. And suddenly I'm like, oh, no, he was in UFO. Oh, everybody. Oh, no, we had a wonderful time, you know. So that made me laugh. That made me laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's funny, man. That's that. Yeah. I kind of get it, but I, that is a bit cheeky. Um, oh, my God. So, <laughs> but, I, we have, I, I, but your question, I mean, it was, you know, playing to, and I went from playing to sold out 150 rooms to playing to, to 1,000 people. You know, and in yeah. the opening night in Frankfurt, two nights sold out at the Zoom Club, you know, on to the next night to places that I'd never heard of, Karlsruhe, Offenbach. And, you know, yeah. I, I just saw the date sheet and think, oh, where am I? You know, I didn't know whether I was in Germany, Switzerland, Austria. I had no idea, really. It was yeah. just another day. You know, Monday was another gig, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we all right. Yeah. There was no money in it. There was no, but it was career building. It was, but it was character building. Yeah, and I mean, you, that's you have a good thing. character in UFO, believe me. Oh, I, I bet, man. I, I bet. Seriously. And I think also, like, you have to have a good learn the, 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 I don't know, not the, the unwritten rules, I suppose, of touring and especially um, late 70s and what have you, going into that sort of heavy metal 80s era and the hedonism that, 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 uh, God almighty, did it, was it pretty hedonistic in the early days? Are you back? Sorry, did I fall? Did I? Did I go away for a bit? Yeah, you did. Yeah, so I missed that. Sorry, no, mind, Carol. No, I was just, I, no, I was just saying. Was what was the? Because uh, I I don't know about the eighties and you or the seventies and you. Like in terms of like mm. your what you personally got up to in rock and roll and groupies and stuff like that. But did when did when did you first like? Did you ever um, get the old whiskey and? F- what do they call them riders and stuff and age 20 and get stuck into that <laughs> not really i mean I know, be, be careful what you wish for yeah. and also be careful what you might read you know yeah i always well if, if there was a friend of mine yesterday and she asked a few questions you know she asked a couple of what she considered to be very personal private questions and my answer to it was I was in one of the biggest rock and roll bands of the period. What do you think I did? <laughs> and she just looked at me and her mum was there. My wife was there and stuff. And, you know, and everything was like, oh, you know, she said that was a stupid question. Wasn't it? <laughs> well, no, not really. But, you know, but when you're on the road, you know, it's you're married to four guys, you know, L5 or whatever it is. And you you spend so much time together. I mean, when I look back on it now, considering the situation within UFO, it's a miracle that we lasted the eight or nine months we did. And we did hundreds of shows, you know, I say hundreds, a lot of shows. Yeah. And we were on the road all the time, you know, in a bit backwards and forwards to Germany and Austria all the time, Switzerland, uh, England, Scotland. And people do still come up to me and say, I saw you with UFO. And that's quite an exclusive club. I never recorded much with them. I did some demos. Yeah. We worked with uh, Dave Edmonds and uh, Dave Edmonds. Good, yeah, Dave Edmonds produced uh, the, some demos for us. With I, the Queen I, I of Hearts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dave, yeah. Dave was great, and I was I was a bit in awe of Dave because he was a a great guitar player, yeah. and he was pretty famous, which was the two biggest criteria that the rest of UFO did like: a that he was famous, <laughs> and he was a good guitar player. <laughs> So it was never going to work, you know. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, so well, I suppose the, the next thing is that how did you transition? Because you, you left, is it wild, not left Wild Turkey, Wild Turkey split up? Well, in- Wild Turkey and uh, Cozy Powell's band, he had a band called Bedlam. 
yeah, uh, who was they were going to be the next cream, and they were really, really good. And I, I knew Cozy because he had been in the Jeff Beck group. So obviously, every guitar player worth his salt has got a Jeff Beck album somewhere down the line. And um, I met him at a gig. We got along well backstage and talked more about football than anything and motor racing. And uh, he said, I've heard a bit about you. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And then cut a longer story short, he'd recorded a single for Mickey Most called Dance with the Devil. And it was a hit. Uh, and instead of rejoicing in it within the band, it caused quite a lot of friction within the band. So he said, I'm leaving Bedlam and I'm going to form my own band and I'd like you to play guitar. Okay. So, and what are you doing next Wednesday? Can you do Top of the Pops? <laughs> well, that was a big C, that, you know, that's the big C change. You know, that's the big, whoa, I'm on telly, you know. And uh, we had a band called Hammer, really good band. Don Airy was in that band. Neil Murray was in that band. Okay, good God. And uh, Cozy and myself, and we did okay. We toured with Susie Quattro. We toured all over the place. Did three singles, all top 20, top of the pops all the time. Mickey Most was the producer. Everything going, right? And uh, we were doing a show at uh, Dunstable, a place called the California Ballroom, which was a very famous gig for its time. Yeah. Much, much loss. Mickey Most came to the gig and saying, well, what? He said, uh, I've decided not to record you a lot, so you can go your own way. And we all went, uh, uh, what? And he said, yeah, so I'm used to being in the studio and telling people what, and that's never going to happen with you a lot, is it? Oh, God, really. He was quite astute. Well, yeah. no, not quite, very astute. But I don't think that band would have, um, you know, we all went on to do separate individual things, obviously, Cozy and myself yeah. and Don, you know. But Hammer was a really good band, but we never really recorded. We did, I think, two or three BBC sessions and yeah. wrote some good stuff. I ended up putting stuff on Babe Ruth album, which was the next band with me. Cozy used some of the stuff on his solo album, and then he played on my solo album. Then we both played on John Lord's solo album. You know, so it was all very much in the family. Right, um, absolutely. I'm jumping it's, forward it's... a bit there. I'm jumping. No, forward. no, that's fine. It's fine. I think when you mentioned Cozy Powell, I always think how tried. How tragic his, his well, death Cozy was. Cozy was like probably one of my closest mates in the business, you know. Yeah. He was best man at my wedding and and we oh, just I'm got so along sorry, well. Be, not, we got along well beside music. We got along very well as people. And uh, yeah, uh, losing him all those years ago was, you know, still, you know, say affects me. It still, still makes you sad, you know. Uh, Cozy would have gone on to do lots of good things because with the, his entrepreneur attitude to drumming he'd have had he'd have had a cozy pal franchise all over the world right. by now. Yeah. and he would have done all right for himself i mean but he did okay just list the bands he played with and the people you know i talked to brian may about cozy we we both sort of uh, have a bit of a, a tear in our eye you know of, of course man the great characters you know the, yeah. the glint glint in their eye you know you can't you can't deny it it's just there like i I, I used to work for with Ringo Starr as a gardener. Um, yeah. And uh, every time I met him and chatted with him, man, there was a glint in that guy's eye and it was awesome to talk with him and it was amazing. Um, but well, we'll get I know to what that you mean. Section. We'll get to the, the Ringo section in a bit. So. Yeah. Oh, you played with Ringo? Yeah. God. God almighty. Do you know what, <laughs> I, really, do you know what I really want to know in a really selfish way is, ju you know... 
have you have you hung out with the quo what at all rick and i got along really well francis and yeah. i get on fine i know john uh yeah. really well we've known john for a long time that's john um, colgan right the drummer uh yeah yeah we yeah. played together in a band he had a band called uh what they called um oh god it was kind of a a loose lineup of different people played with him and i did a few shows yeah. with john and we, you know we got along fine rick I, I i rick and i always wanted to work together rick wanted me to write with him and yeah. we did plan it on several occasions of course with it being rick it never happened oh, and uh... the, the last time i saw him was you know he was in good shape in fact i was with olivia and um, uh, there's a nice photograph of the two of them somewhere knocking around. Oh. And I saw Quo recently. I they opened up for um, um, Lynn Skinner last year. And it was okay. a bit weird seeing the status quo open up for somebody. It was a little bit odd. But they were, you know, they were Quo and they were doing their thing. And it was nice to see Francis. But Francis without Rick is, 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 a, is strange, you know. But, yeah, you know, he can't come back. So, But Quo was always a band that I was always aware of not my kind of thing really musically but as blokes you know loving the bits you yeah. know that's the other thing a lot of my contemporaries over the years would say oh uh, why do you hang out with him or why do you hang out with her you know they're useless you know so well you might not like their music well you might not like the way they play football or something but they're just people yeah. and uh you know without going into names you know that that happened quite a lot with some of them you know the, my contemporaries over the years and yeah, you know yeah. they kind of misjudge people or prejudge people really and i've tried not to do that really no no well that's cool man so it's kind of cool talking to someone that knew rick personally um having been obsessed yeah, I knew with him, him, well, knew him you know i knew him as, as well as i think anybody outside of their collective and believe me to be getting that inner circle with them that that was quite rare as well oh really God, mm. I bet, I bet. So, yeah. Sh yeah, man, let's let's go. Should we go White Snake? Should we do White Snake? Because yep. uh, that yep. that was um, the the sort of the was it Deep Deep Purple were falling apart and 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 then no, the big the big the big move was after um, after Babe Ruth, uh, Babe Ruth was I got a call from Cozy that John Lord and Ian Pace were looking for a guitar player, and I said, well, well they don't want me. I know nothing about Deep Purple, you know. And he mm. said, well, I'll put your name up for it. And Nikos is one of those guys, just do, just go, will you? You know, he's one of those guys, <laughs> who's you told? I was like, okay. And I was away with Babe Ruth somewhere. And then I finally did phone up this uh, number. And the woman was really like, oh, you do exist then. We've been trying to get you for three weeks and all this. And I was, I thought, oh yeah, okay. So can you go to this studio tonight? And I auditioned for Pace Ashton Lord. Uh, but yeah. I didn't know I was auditioning for Pace Ashton Lord. I just thought it was... And they said, uh, do you know, John, John Lord said, do you know anything about Deep Purple? I went, not really. And he said, uh, oh, and I thought, so, so, is my wasting your time? And I said, Cozy says, you know, it's very cool. Do this all. He said to me, on the water sorry said, bernie I, I i lost you there for about a full 30 seconds sorry i'm i'm yeah you froze for about 30 seconds okay I, what did you miss i i missed um when you when the woman or not the woman but someone you thought that they were like yeah, the woman, do, you, okay. do you know anything about deep purple and you were like not really okay so at the audition john lord said have you 
listen to Deep Purple? And I said, no, not really. I said, no, dance on the water. To me with a grin, I said, I think you mean smoke on the wall. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I only know the riff that everybody plays in guitar shops. Yeah. And they both yeah. cracked up laughing. And I realised then that they were looking for somebody completely different. And that's, you know, who could play and sing and write, and the, which is the reason why Cozy recommended me. And I got that gig. That Sweet. gig lasted about a year. Did a great album called Malice in Wonderland. Yeah. And I met David Coverdale while we were recording in Munich. And then he came to London to put a band together. And he said, uh, is it true you're joining McCartney's band? And I said, uh, possibly. And uh, I said, I've been waiting on a phone call really for about a month now. And he said, well, I'm putting a band together and I'd like you to be in it, but I can't match Macca's offer. And I said, well, you can, because there is no offer. <laughs> I've, just, I've just had a meeting and a couple of, a phone call and a couple of, North London, and it was playing that we were home. It began. God, that's 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 so cool. That is so cool. Like, not many people can say that. That's a pretty. That's so mm-hmm. cool. I I, I love I love how things fall together. You think something's oh no, this opportunity's falling apart. I could be playing with Paul McCartney, and then like Coverdale's going, mate, come on. Yeah, it's like yeah. I what so what's what's meeting date what's 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 that guy like when you first meet him, or have you known you know him for a while prior to that? No, I've seen him. I've seen him play because Cozy and I had been to see the final strands of Deep Purple, which was quite painful to watch some nights. Mm. And um, we saw the couple of shows like that. Cozy uh, was Cozy in Rainbow by then. I'm not sure. I think he was. And by the time the white, I think he was in Rainbow. And somebody will know. And. Uh, <laughs> something that I realized, you know, was going to be different because Coverdale was so good and I'd missed, I, I kind of hadn't really heard him sing because I'd never really listened to Deep Purple. And then Cozy had played me, funny enough, at his house, he had played me a white label acetate of Burn. And I, I liked it and I said, this guy, what a great singer, because he was an unknown quantity. And I said, who is it? And he said, I'm not telling you who it is, because if I tell you who it is, you won't like it. <laughs> so we, he, he played side one, then side two, his house. Now I was introduced to the voice of David Coverdale. So when I met him, I knew a lot, quite a lot about his, his, his singing ability. And we got on really well. You know, we're both kind of, you know, single, single child children. And we got to listen to the same, we're the same age, really. Yeah. Grew up with the same influences, you know, liked the same bands. And we, we did sort of look at each other and said, well, this will work. And that's how yeah. we began. Oh, my God. That voice, though. Can you, I mean, mm. can you describe, like, the first rehearsals and how you felt about, like, your chemistry? The rehearsals were, were you know, gung-ho and lot frenetic and powerful. But once we got in the studio, it because of the, the, the musicality of the band, everybody it was so good. And we were just concentrating on the band. You know, I didn't want to be Richie Blackmore. I, nobody wanted to be an individual star. Within, we, wanted, we wanted to be in a good band with good songs. And no matter how good that backing track was that we recorded, you just knew it was going to be better when he was singing on it.
we were saying about the chemistry uh, in your first rehearsals with between you and the guys. Well, first off, first off, we had to find a rhythm section, and then we had to find uh, a keyboard player. The rhythm section came together fairly quickly because uh, we tried about five or six, uh, probably more than that, bass players, and then and um, he said, "Oh." I said, well, he played with me with Cozy. So, well, let's get him in then. So he came down and then we had a bass player, then we had a drummer. So um, we found a keyboard player about probably a week or so afterwards. But we had three or four keyboard players because we really knew that it was inevitable that John Lord would come into the fray. Yeah. At some... So it, the, the, chem the chemistry was really good and uh, we were just going home. And it was a punk era, you know, it was like the... It was big big time punk era and we were we were dinosaurs at 26 <laughs> yeah you know it was like so if we'd have all given into like the so-called music press at that time we wouldn't have even bothered yeah but uh, we just kept going and suddenly we realized that we we started off in small we did university gigs colleges nobody remembers those they remember donnington yeah but they don't remember that we started off in 300 capacities which we did awesome what were they what were they like what was your like with the reception like then because i mean i presume like uh... well it was it was crazy because um we were in a for instance we played a, a place called the, this for instance the penthouse club in scarborough mm -hmm. right which was a 300 max okay <laughs> so you imagine suddenly in scarborough you've got you've got the lead singer from deep purple right yeah <laughs> playing the 300 so it was always going to sell out and then the rest of us would all come from our workhorse bands collectively. And so it was no surprise that they were packed. And yet we were always surprised that they were packed. Yeah. And then we went from 300 to 500 to 600 to a thousand. And suddenly we're doing the big shows Yeah. and all underneath this thing about, Oh, you're all dinosaurs and your music's finished. Yeah. But the promoters were much more hip than, the public really so hang on you're like you were written off at 26 well they could yeah i mean you know we were anybody from deep purple or from anything to do with that kind of history yeah you know it was like let's you know you, you had you know ogres from sham 69 or whatever saying get rid of all these old blokes the funny thing is half of them were older than us <laughs> yeah. but uh it was a strange it wasn't strange because we it, it never affected us all we knew was we were piling into a, like a mercedes bus driving to nottingham and then to swindon and then to manchester and or whatever yeah. and we were selling out every night but we were playing some great music we had to play about four or five deep purple songs because we had to do an hour and a half set right so we just did them our way and, and the deep purple fans latched onto that very quickly yeah and so that that was good. Yeah, no. they, and they, they they latched onto us very quickly as well. So what year is this? Like nineteen eighty, isn't it? Like nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty. No, no, seventy. We started in seventy eight. Seventy eight. Okay. 78. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's a tough time, isn't it? Because if you you know really you you go back to then, like you said, the punk and then the post punk uh, movement yeah. was incredible. You know, I mean, it was very very. And then the eighties, then you got the new romantics. Yeah. It's an amazing time you know. to be around, right? To feel. Well, we did TV shows with you know, you know, polystyrene and Sade and uh, White Snake and Black Sabbath. Right. I mean, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. But you know, we're all like by that time we could all be. Hello, yeah, that's you, Tony Iommi. Hello, mate. How are you? All right, <laughs> oh, mate. All And that was, you know, that was how it should be. But none of us had anything to do with the punk bands because. 
they, they we were the personification of everything that they detested yeah. uh mainly because we could all play a bit right right absolutely no i get it i mean like i i've both loved punk post-punk and metal hair metal yeah. the lot blues yeah. rock you know the, the, I, I definitely was a, a real you know stickler when i was growing up like hating anything that was anti heavy metal mm. or heavy rock and mm. then then i grew up a little bit and then i was then i was the other way and then i realized yeah. it's just good music who gives a shit but it's but you, and you get influenced you get influenced by your friends and contemporaries or you read a magazine i mean if you read the new musical express then you automatically didn't like rock and roll music yeah you know it was like a bible you know thou shalt not like this and mm. and they would send people to gigs to review you knowing they would hate you yeah so if you so that's what the, when the term come in and people like cozy would say to me you know for every good review you read reading where somebody says how good you are and enjoy it you've also got to read the one where the guy said he's a, he's a bunch of crap and i don't like him and they're rubbish yeah you've got to read that one as well yeah no i mean you just have to or read none of them some people read nothing i just i'd read and they just do the job i'd read nothing bernie i just i'd read nothing yeah. and assume that they loved me because i'm that kind of yeah. guy but sounds like a song i assume that they love me so, <laughs> that's good so like what when's a real turning point then man because if you're like going from a thousand and then i'm guessing like at some point you're sitting down with Coverdale and the guys and you're writing together. When is it like? Yeah, but I love, by the time we did Love Hunter, we were, right. were writing some good stuff. Walking in the Shadow of the Blues was there. Yeah. And then Ian Pace joined for Ready and Willing. That was the White Snake tipping point, really, because Ian came in. By that time, we were really writing good stuff, playing good. John was in the band, Ian was in the band. Then it was like, oh, is this Deep Purple reforming in secret? No, and that's another thing. But by that time, we were then doing two nights at Hammersmith, two nights here, two nights in Liverpool. And we were a really, really big, successful band. And Cup and Get It went straight in at number one. So is that, what? what's the, because if we can rewind, so just, I mean, not to be too phonetical, phonetical, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, To to get into the detail of where you kind of, where it turned round for you from being like this 300 capacity deep purple not cover band but people giving you a bit of shit for it to then sort of winning people around to like playing two nights at the hammersmith apollo i, I, I think it's, it, i think it's the opposite to the cover thing i think people who came to see us realized how good the band was right regardless of the purple the purple connection was purely because of the guys who were in the band and so we'd, we'd broken into doing two nights at hammersmith odeon before ian pace joined the band so it wasn't just a deep purple thing, you know, mm. and wherever you've got the deep purple singer in the band and you've got John, I've got, I've got John Lord on a meter away from me every night. There's always going to, there was always going to be a deep purple, Breath. you know, comparison or mm. connection just purely through the guys that were there. Yeah. But Weissnake turned around. We, we became also with ready and willing fulfill loving was designated very early on as, as the single. But at that time, we became the BBC's rock band. So when they say you don't play enough rock music, they were saying we play white <laughs> So we were lucky. We were fortunate in that. Yeah. Or they were clever enough to play good stuff. Right. So, you know, I always look back on that. That sometimes gets a little bit forgotten by in interviews. But I remember it quite clearly that the BBC and a lot of producers at the BBC said, no, look, we'll play white Yeah. 
And even if there's, there's not enough rock in the material in, in the programming, play a couple of White Snake tracks. Brilliant, brilliant. So who's who's that? Who that was a turning point. As well. What DJs were supporting you then in the at the Radio One or whatever? There were Tommy Vance. Tommy Vance. Tommy Vance was. T- important figure at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And he had a big show. He had a three-hour show on a Saturday afternoon, and every every week you play a White Snake track. Do you, do you know what, Bernie? When I was at boarding school, crying about being homesick and being bullied and all kinds of shit, I used to put on Tommy Vance, Virgin Radio, Friday Night Rock Show, yeah. and they'd play White Snake. Uh, uh, you know, well, White Snake. The Friday Rock Show was what the theme was. White Snake track. Yeah, yeah, man. I used to love that. I used to tune yeah. in with my honestly, like people say Radio Caroline. I completely get that because. I used to have this crappy little radio. I used to plug my headphones in. Everyone was asleep and I used to wait up for the rock show and Tommy would play like, yeah, Whitesnake or whatever or a bit of Thin Lizzy and I'd just be in heaven, you know? Radio, that kind of Radio Caroline thing, I get that big time. Yeah. But it's it's a a special moment that. But um, it'd be be cool to touch on um, Here I Go Again like and how that, song came about and and how that obviously changed things again because i know fool for your loving was also a, 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 a cracking hit and stuff well so. fool for your loving was a hit yeah um would i like to you was a hit and come and get it and then we did saints and sinners album and during that time that was when the band <laughs> it sounds more dramatic than it was but the, the band was kind of disintegrating during those sessions yeah but i wrote here i go again uh in, in that in that period and uh, took it into the studio to play it to david and we put it together pretty quickly and um it was a hit here people tend to forget that it was a hit in 1980 it was top 20 yeah and then the band broke up and then in 87 86 mm. when they recorded the 1987 album he re-recorded here i go again and it sold millions and millions and millions to this day and because of that i'm known in america as a songwriter just as much as i'm known as a guitar player yeah. and a lot of people in america who love white snake don't know that i was ever in white snake <sighs> but that doesn't bug me yeah it's a weird one though because i can listen to that white i can listen to white snake 87 mm. the same way as i put on a foreigner album or a journey album it's just good rock music hell yeah just happened to, i was in that band called white snake and i just happened to write one of the biggest songs ever yeah just happened and i hope you got doesn't really work like that i hope yeah. i hope they sort the royalties out for you there bernie i hope there's some i hope because yeah. i know well, how that i'm not complaining i know how shit goes down in the music business it's absolutely horrific now there, there, there's there's a there was a, a lot of that going on but um there was nothing to do with the intern that was to do with the old management of the band yeah. and that's for the reason the band broke up because we had pretty appalling management oh god really what taking advantage it was a golden goose situation mm. in order to to get away we had to kill the goose to you know to to get the eggs and then and then the goose never came back <laughs> <laughs> oh god i just white snake is still going david's carried it on yeah. and uh, done done amazing with it and you know to this day people can go and see white snake and there's still a whole army of people who say yeah but it's not really white snake is it and i said well to the other half yes it is so I'm I'm kind of ambivalent about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, life's too short, for God's sake. I think we've learned that, pre- yeah. like you know, quite profoundly. The last three months is people. Right, exactly, mate. It's put things into perspective. But um, 
I've, yeah. I've got really, um, I don't know why, I've just got this thing in my head. I've been looking at trying to find lineups of Reading Festival or like awesome like lineups of festivals y- you were involved with. What, I mean, over the years, like what, what's been like, say, what's been your, your, your like, I don't know, like dream lineup of a festival that you've played on, like on a bill? What do you mean with the other artists? Well, like with, yeah, say like if there's Lizzie or um, I don't know. Yeah, do you know what? I think you can ask any of my contemporaries. We never think like that. It's, you never think like the lineup. You just, it's, a, it's another gig. Mm-hmm. And if you, whether you, you know, if you're either you're headlining the festival and you'll say, and I can assure you that half of Whitesnake, if I'd have said when we headlined the two times at Reading, if I'd have said, who else is on this weekend? They wouldn't have had a clue. <laughs> right? Not a clue. Point, and yeah. I would probably only have known because Gary Moore might have called me and said, you know, I'm on on Saturday when you are. And I go, oh, great. We'll meet up and have a pint. Right. Stuff like that. But festival bills, I don't think we ever think about mm. it. You just do the gig. You know, the, uh, you talked about turning points before. Donington was a turning point for Whitesnake when we, but we didn't headline that. That was with ACDC. Yeah, but that was probably the crowning glory of Whitesnake in my time, because we played to all those people who suddenly thought, "Wow, this is some band." And then we toured with ACDC in Germany, and we went from selling fifty thousand albums to selling five hundred thousand. Oh. So it worked in those days. It worked, you know. Oh my god, I just. But, I had a real grunt of unbearable jealousy of not being able to see that 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 gig. Yeah. What was it like? Well, was it like? I mean, to, to do to do a month a month's tour with ACDC oh. back in black. Oh I never, I never missed a show. I was on that side of the stage every night doing this. Yeah, Head. get into oh, it. You know, I bet. And great, great music and a great tour. And then Coverdale broke his leg in Saarbrücken and cut Christmas time. So we had to curtail our part of the tour and we were supposed to open in America for them as well the following year and we didn't go. And I think Whitesnake, the original Whitesnake, you know, we'll never, ever know. But I, I always maintain that if we'd have gone to America the same way we went to Europe with ACDC, we'd have cracked it way before 1987 yeah. and the 90s. God. But, you know, I'm not complaining. No, I, I yeah. Again, like you don't, you don't know what would have happened on that tour anyway. You don't, for sure. You don't, you don't know what's what's happening. And, and I'm damn sure that he didn't break his leg on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fucking hell, man! I just thought David David Grohl when you said that because Dave Grohl did that. That was a bad. That was a bad week, man. That was the week that Lennon was was shot in New York, oh, and a couple of days later, it was he broke. Um, and we were still in kind of shock after that, mm. and then then he slipped over on on some dry ice or whatever it was, and he really really damaged his leg badly oh. and i remember ian pace saying to me that's it this tour's over for us and Shit. he was right we thought you know he'd be all right tomorrow but he wasn't he was in a really in a bad way oh my god mate I, yeah. do you know do you know what though just to have that i mean five six weeks touring with dc that's unreal i mean absolutely unreal I, they're, they're... and we got along great you know mm. we we you know they had a the the um once again the camaraderie was was so good but there again See Brian, it was one of Brian's early tours with uh, with with the boys. Yeah. Together when he was in a band called Geordie. Yeah, man. I when I was with Cozy. So we we you know we went back, you know, almost ten years before. Yeah. So uh, you know, swings around about. Oh, that is so awesome. Because Brian Johnson is one mm. of the nicest men I've ever met in my life. 
I met. He was then, and he is now. Yeah. Oh God, I met him at um, Ringo's seventieth birthday when he when I like I said I used to work there, and he he basically invited this massive entourage of incredible musicians, and I spent half the time shaking. Uh, just through being around. Let me tell you something about, tell you something about playing with Ringo Starr. Yeah, yeah, go for it, go for it. Nobody will ever know, and there's only a few of us, right, who can sing that line from uh, With a Little Help from My Friends. When you sing, what would you say if I turned out the light? And then Ringo Starr turns around and sings back, I don't know, but I'm certain, you know? Yeah. That's like Ringo Starr's on. I'm on stage, and I pinch myself all through the gig. Brilliant. All through, all, all through all the shows I did with him, it was like I'm playing with Ringo Starr. Now this is the boy who played along with the tennis racket to the Beatles in 1963 in my in my in the living room with a radio. Program. Amazing. But dream, dreams do come true. Oh mate, that's wonderful, isn't it? That really is. Like that is just gold. I think like that's a great moment. And, he, and he's a great bloke as well. You know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to become pretty good friends with George Harrison as well. And, you know, and it's nothing to do with at first, you know, you look, you go, oh my God, it's George Harrison, it's Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, whatever. But then, you know, once George Harrison says, would you like a beer? And he goes to his fridge and he brings out a couple of cans of Heineken. Yeah. And then you go, I'm sitting with George Harrison and he's a great bloke, you know, and, and I invited to his house and you get to do that. And then, he tells you the stories about the Beatles and it's coming from him. Oh my God. And you think, you know, this is special, you know? So yeah, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I wrote the book. Brilliant, man. I, I, I am, I am, yeah. I am dying to get stuck into that, but let me tell you, <laughs> I, I do. Okay. I'm conscious of the time. I don't want to take the piss here. Um, I don't want to, you know, overdo it with you. I don't want to take it. Well, look back on this one and then we, we'll do another half an hour. Or something. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what, do, do you remember the SAS band? What the uh, what uh, the Queen got? So so basically, um, I it was you and was it Mick Moody um, or something like that? And you you guys you you played with a, a, quite a lot of other guys, and you you played Chilling Fold Club. Yeah, that wasn't the SAS was band. The SAS, SAS band was uh, the SAS band was um, a guy called Spike Edney uh, who played with Queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that, and t- I think it was the, it was a um, Tony from uh, Spandau Ballet. Yeah, he was in, but I wasn't in the SAS band. I I, had, I was in. Um, uh, we did Chilling Fold. That would be with um, the company of Snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, I get so. Yeah. But basically, right? Yeah. This is confession. This is confession yeah. time, Bernie. You're gonna have to. This is this is bad. You may remember this or not, but I was a very young, drunk, eighteen-year-old wearing an ACDC T-shirt down the front. Off, <laughs> off my face, yes. drunk, and I jumped up on stage and was like dancing next to you or just doing the, you know, the devil's. Don't worry, horns. you're not the only one to do that, right? And you're not the only one to do that. And you were, I looked, looked at, I looked toward next to me, and you're playing the guitar. You've got a smile on your face, like a mile <laughs> wide, and this roadie comes and just grabs me by my back and. Pushes, takes me down the back, pushes you off. But puts me back, and I go, I go back down to the front of the stage. Back up. Yeah, and you're like, at the end of the song, you're like, "There's always one, and it's always you." <laughs> it's always you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's one of those put down lines I you, you learn on stage. Yeah, Chiddingfold was good. I used to enjoy playing. I was down there last year at um, not Chiddingfold, but close by, mm. 
uh, but Stone Promoter. Yeah, what, Tony? So, Tony, yeah. Oh, God, that guy, yeah. he's a sweetheart. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was good. That was I was that was only last year, I think. And, oh, really? uh, it was either the book tour or something. Was I can't Cran- remember. No, Cranley Arts Centre or something. Yeah, Cranley, that's yeah. it, yeah. 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 Oh, that... And I do that thing with Paul Jones, which which he helps to organise as well. Oh. So I did that one at uh, with with Van Morrison. That was good. Oh, Van Morrison and Rip Waitman. That was Jesus. that was a good night. <laughs> Hold the phone. Yeah. Bloody hell, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, because Chid is basically where I, that's the village I grew up in, and so right. you had this very strange and very one-off. There's no other village like it, I'm sure. Yeah, um, that was like a local musical oasis. Yeah, that was. It was extraordinary. Yeah. I saw I saw Eric Clapton yeah. play down there. I saw Damon Hill play down there. But Damon probably played with us that night. You would have. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you might have missed. No, that. no, I was. But it, yeah, I was managed just yeah. just. So Damon much. drove me to the gig that night, all over the place. It was hilarious. Are you fucking kidding yeah. me? Damon Hill drove yeah, you to the gig. Drove me to the gig. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Oh my god. Okay, well. That was good. I, Thanks, mate. Yeah. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> yeah. See you later. Oh my god. So he played. So he played my Red Strat. I think he was a. He's either I can play a bit, Damon. He's yeah. Right. No, he's a lovely guy. He lives around Godalming, and I bumped into him to, into him as well yeah. and had a little chat, like a proper fanboy. But um, Bernie, yeah. let's call it and um, now and then. Would it be okay to like do another one in like a week or something? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, man. Well, thanks. So, thank you okay. so much for your time, Bernie. You're welcome. And my mate Kev uh, sends his love. He loves you, and he loves your book. Hello, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to you in a week. All or right, so. Bernie. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Okay. All the best. Bye. Bye. Mate.